This morning, we're looking at a little letter, uh, the second smallest letter in the New Testament, and it is 2 John. It's on page 1,126. I wonder if uh, you could confirm that this mic is still working in here, because the main problem is getting the sound out from around this, this shield, and that's why we have the mic inside here. Could you all confirm, anybody who's watching, that you can hear this loud and clear and not muffled? Second uh, John is on page 1,126, and I'll be reading the entire book, the entire letter, which is just one page. And it says this, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house, or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When it comes to Advent and when it comes to Christmas, there are different opinions and different practices among Christians. Uh, Some people treat it as a very uh, important spiritual experience in their Christian lives. Other people reject it uh, because of some of the pagan associations and the the, uh, roots of it. Um, In my case, I mostly ignore Advent. And I cheerfully go along with Christmas. Uh, that keeps domestic tranquility in our home uh, because there are other people in the home that really love uh, some of the traditions. And I, I also enjoy some of the traditions surrounding Christmas. But I am fascinated, fascinated with the incarnation itself. And that's the doctrine, that's the truth that we're focusing on. The incarnation, the Enfleshment of the Son of God. And the idea is quite astounding. It is that God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son of God, enfleshed Himself. He took on real human flesh. He became a man just like we are humans, without ceasing to be God. Now, that is probably a hard idea to grasp and to believe. And many people do not believe it. 
many people outside of the church, by definition, they don't believe it. They do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God become a man. But there are also, and have also been, many in the church who have had a hard time accepting this. And, and so they, they, they came up with different ideas, different theories to tar- try to explain who Jesus is, but their theories always end up, ended up rejecting the enfleshment, the incarnation of the Son of God. And here we have, in this little letter, a response to some of those. This letter was written precisely because there were some, even in the first century, some in the church who considered themselves Christians who were denying the enfleshment of the Son of God. Now, this letter has some intriguing aspects to it. It is from the elder. That's what he calls himself, the elder, the presbyter. And he obviously expects the people to know who he was. He looks like he's using code language here perhaps because of persecution. So if this letter fell into hostile hands, it would look like a personal letter from an old man to a woman. Uh, Elder simply means old man, but it also is a church office. But this man looks like he's more than just a, a local church elder because he is assumed to have authority at least in a region and maybe beyond that. Now, the oldest, the idea about who this elder was, is that he was none other than the Apostle John. And that's why this letter is called, in our Bibles, Second John. And this letter almost certainly was written by the same person who wrote what we call First John and what we call Third John. They have many similarities. And one of the reasons for uh, considering that this is the Apostle John is because these three letters also have much in common with the Gospel of John. Now, the problem with that is, none of these are named. The author of none of these is found in the books themselves. So we have to do detective work, as we did back in the series on the Gospel of John. And by a process of elimination, we decided that the most likely candidate for the Gospel of John is John the Apostle. And it looks like the same person wrote these, and so that's why these are applied to him as well, attributed to him as well. Now, who are the readers? The elder to the elect lady and her children. Elect lady and her children. And then if you look at the last line, the children of your elect sister greet you. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the church, the word church, assembly, is a feminine word, because in Greek the, the words have, have, have a gender. But in addition to that, the, the church is treated as a woman, as the bride of Christ. And, and up until recently, even in English, we talked about her when we referred to the church. And so it, it looks like this is a local church. One local church where the elder is sending a letter to another local church and the members of that local church. So it's one local church to another local church, the members of one, the children of one, sending greetings to the children, the members of the other. Now, John here filled one sheet of papyrus. That's what they used. They used this this writing um, writing material, and uh, this letter is the length of, of one sheet. And he filled it up, and then he said, that's all I'm going to say right now. 
and I'd rather not say any more this way. I hope to talk to you face to face. Look at verse 12. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. We probably didn't understand that uh, as much as we do now. Uh, during this year, how we have longed to talk to each other face to face rather than through Zoom or through through these uh, protective apparatus. But uh, John was longing to be with them. Now, in this introduction, John does some interesting things. One thing that he does is he telegraphs his his main themes. That is, he announces his main themes here. Uh, so he says, verse one: the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love. In truth, love in truth. And not only I, um, but also all who know the truth, so all Christians, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Love. So he's not wasting words here. He is announcing what this letter is about. It's about truth and it's about love. And we're going to see how he develops truth and love. Um, in addition, he, he adapts the greeting. There was a traditional Roman greeting for letters, uh, the sender to the recipients, and then simply the word greeting. But Paul took that and he Christianized it. And he said, he said, um, uh, Paul, uh, to the church and so-and-so, instead of saying simply greeting, he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, John develops that even further, and he adds another term, grace, mercy, and peace. And Paul used mercy only the two times he wrote Timothy. We don't find that in his other letters. But here, this, this triad, grace, mercy, and peace. And in addition... He didn't say, may these be with you. He said, these will be with us. This is not a a wish. This is not a prayer. This is a statement. He's already told us in verse 2, the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. And then grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. And then he reiterates, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ The Father's Son. The only time that expression appears, the Father's Son. Now, uh, one author, one student of this text, suggests that grace, mercy, and peace are chronological. Are chronological. That is to say, God shows His favor towards sinners. That's grace. The result is the forgiveness of our sins. That's mercy. And the further result of that is a restored relationship with God and well-being in our lives. That's peace. That's shalom. And that's what he says. These will be with us and they will come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. And in all of these greetings, in all of these greetings, what the authors do is they put the Father and the Son on the same level, on the same level. And so sometimes you might be challenged and people say, where does the Bible say that Jesus is, is, is God? And it's really more a question of where does it not say it? Because there are verses that say it explicitly, and then there are verses like this that just simply assume that this is where Jesus is. Jesus is on par with the Father. Now, that's the introduction. And he didn't throw any words away, did he? He packed this full with content. And then he says in verse 4, the occasion of the letter. The occasion was this. 
He said, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. So it looks like John, and maybe in some of his travels or in some of their travels, some of the members of that church, John had run into them, and he rejoiced because they were walking according to the truth. The truth. And what is the truth? Well, if you go down to verse 9, we find out what that truth is. The truth is also called the teaching of Christ, which could mean the teaching that is Christ's teaching, or it could mean the teaching about Christ, but it means the same thing in either case, that they were walking according to the teaching which is from Christ and that is about Christ. That is the truth, and they were walking according to it. Now, he said that this kind of walking is in accordance with what God the Father commanded. Verse 4, I found some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, there are different theories about the relationship between 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And one theory is that 1 John is an expansion of 2 John. Another is that 2 John is a summary of 1 John. Um, it comes to the same thing, but it may be that Second John was actually written first, and then First John expands it because we find we find that the situation had perhaps deteriorated between Second John and First John. But however that may be, we can go back to First John and find verses that help us understand what Second John means. He says this this walking according to the truth is in accordance to the commandments. So let's go back to First John uh, chapter three, verse twenty three. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. He boils down the command of the Father to two things. Believe the truth and walk in love. Believe the truth and walk in love. And He says that's what they were doing. And He was rejoicing because they were doing just that. Now notice what He says to them, going back to Second John, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Interesting. First he says, you all are doing great. I found some of your children. They're doing great. They're walking in the truth as they were commanded. So let's keep going. I I remind you of this. Let's continue to walk in the truth. He says to this very loving church, he says, we need to love even more. And what's that commandment that he mentions there? He says, this is not a new commandment. But it was a new commandment when Jesus gave it. Back in John chapter 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's not new, but then he, he, he amps it up, doesn't he? He ramps it up and says, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. And how did Christ love us? By giving his life for us. And that's the standard. In the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a very high standard. Do everything for your neighbor that you should do for yourself, or that you do for yourself. But then Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. I raise the bar here. Love one another as I have loved you. By that, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And John says, I remind you of that. That commandment, it's no longer new. Christ gave it to us. I remind you of that. Let's love one another. Now, how do we do that? Verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you may walk in it. And that it, it's a little ambiguous, but probably means love. It's a feminine it, and the word love is feminine. The word commandment is feminine as well, but probably it refers to love. 
And so, notice this is a bit circular. The commandment says, love one another. And then we say, well, what's that mean? And John says, well, what it means is to obey the commandments. But notice something subtle here. Notice something subtle. He refers to the commandment in singular, and he refers to the commandments in plural. So what's the commandment? The commandment is, believe the truth and love one another. The commandments, plural, are all the ways that we have in Scripture to do just that. So the commandments tell us how to keep the commandment. The commandments, in plural, are the filling out of the commandment. And we see that, for example, if you go back to Romans 13, verse 8, Paul Paul puts these together, love and obedience to the commandments. Oh, no one anything. Uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, plural, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, notice notice this, that, that love has content here. It has, it has rails on which to run. And that needs to be emphasized in our day, because in our day, love can be defined however anybody wants to define it. It has no content. And so the idea of love today is that any sort of affection that you might have for anything or anyone in any sort of fashion, love is love and that's legitimate. It's up to you to decide and to define what love is. And John is saying, no, love has content There are ways to love each other. And those ways are defined by the commandments that God has given. And if we are not walking in those commandments, however it might feel toward us, it is not being loving toward one another. Now, he's not calling us here to march in the streets, uh, to, to denounce the twisted view of love in the world, although that may in some context be helpful. What he's calling us to do is to demonstrate what true love is. He's saying, you, you have faith in Jesus. You, you Christians, show the world what true love is. Uh, You can can express your opinion about what marriage is and you can can make a stand for biblical marriage and and, and that's a, a good thing to do. But even more powerful than that is show the world what married love looks like. Let them look at your marriage and say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why you Christians are talking about a biblical pattern of marriage because I see a kind of love in you that I do not see anywhere else in the world. And you can, you can stand for family values. And that's a wonderful thing to do. But if you want people to believe you, show them what familial love looks like among Christians. Let them look at your family and see what a, a Christian father looks like. How he shows the love of the father and a Christian mother and Christian children. Show the world what this looks like. Show the world what, what love looks like among friends. And then, and then even show them what, what love looks like toward enemies. One of the most radically Christian things that we can do. Because that's what Jesus said. All men will know that you are my disciples if what? If you love one another. And that's the call. And it was urgent 
in John's day, and it's urgent today, and the urgency in John in John's day is in verse 7. The urgency of practicing love based on truth was that many had gone out from the church, from the church, into the world after failing to confess the truth. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And this is why some scholars date this this uh, letter before 1 John, because in 1 John it looks like they're still in the church. In 2 John it looks like they've gone out of the church by this time. That may be correct, I don't know. But it says here that they were failing to confess the truth. And what were they failing to confess? They were failing to confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now, it's interesting because that, that, is, uh, that is expressed here in the in the present, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. But if we go back to chapter 4 of 1 John, he says that a little bit differently. He says in 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. John's the only one in these two letters who uses that word Antichrist. And who are these Antichrists? They are those who do not confess, those who do not confess, Jesus Christ is God who has come in the flesh. They are denying the Incarnation. And because of that, they are antichrists and they are deceivers. Now, apparently, apparently what's going on here is they just could not accept that a holy, eternal God would get that close to us. That, that, just, that just disturbed them. The idea that a holy, eternal God would become one of these. That He would take on... This kind of stuff. And it probably was an aversion to material things. An idea that spirit is good and holy and right. And and material things, they're bad, they're evil, this fleshly stuff. And so we can't allow God to get mixed up with this sort of material, lowly, earthly thing. Now, there were different ideas uh, for different different thinkers, and, and they were branded eventually by the church as heretics, those who had, had gone away from the truth of, of Jesus. There was, in the first century, Serinthus. Serinthus had the theory that, that the Christ, the eternal Christ, descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, and then he left the man Jesus before the crucifixion, because you can't have the Christ being crucified. And so Jesus was a mere man when he was crucified. There was also adoptionism, the idea that God the Father picked out a particularly virtuous man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he adopted him as his son. There was docetism, uh, and these docetists said, yeah, he looked like a man, he felt like a man, he acted like a man, but it wasn't really real. He just seemed to be a man. And it was actually fictitious. There was Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism said that the, the divine Logos, the Word, the eternal Word of God, came into the body of the man Jesus and replaced the soul of the man Jesus. So he was a, a man, but didn't have a man's soul. He had a divine soul. 
And then there's a more recent theory, the last century, the canonic theory that said that the Son of God gave up, emptied Himself of some of His divine attributes in order to take on humanity. And then we have, and I don't mean to squish any of your favorite Christmas carols, but we have Christmas carols that make Jesus into something of a a model baby who never cries. And, and, And let me tell you, if He's a baby that never cries, He's not a human baby. He just seems to be one. Now, all these, all these, as one of my professors brilliantly summed up, he said, all these attempts aren't very helpful because they are attempts to explain the Incarnation by denying it. They purport to explain it, but they end up denying it. But I have to say, I have to admit that I am sympathetic with these heretics because I was a teenage heretic myself. When I first became a Christian and I was just beginning to learn the rudiments of the gospel, I assumed something about Jesus' humanity. And this is what I assumed, and it's not far from some of these heresies. I assumed that Jesus, the Son of God, took on humanity, did His thing for His 30-some years, and then once He got to heaven, ditched humanity. But then in the church where I joined first, where I was baptized, they gave me a little document called the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I read that for the first time ever. And we give that out here as well, and you'll read it as well if you join this church. And I got to question 21, which asks this, Who is the Redeemer of God's Chosen One? And the answer is this, the only Redeemer of God's Chosen One is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son of God, who became man. He was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And I was stunned by two words. I knew that He was, but I did not know that He continued to be The word continued to be shocked me and troubled me and also the word forever because I thought I was I was amazed at what Christ had done. I thought he took on humanity for 33 years and I thought that was astounding that he would lower himself to do that, that he would be one of us for 33 years. But then I learned that the commitment was far greater that He did not cast off our humanity once He was ascended into heaven. Rather, He is God and man forever. And I stood amazed even more at what Christ had done for us. Why would He get, why would he get mixed up with humanity? Not just for a little, a little bit of time, but for the rest of all eternity. And then as I reflected more and more on the Incarnation, I was troubled and also amazed as I began to reflect on a real human Son of God who, who had dirty diapers and as an, ad, an adolescent maybe had acne and perhaps a crush on the neighbor girl and, and yelled when he hit his thumb with, his, with Joseph's hammer in the workshop. I I, I was amazed as I began to reflect on just how human His humanity is. That He was like us 
in every sense, except in one, as Hebrews tells us, except that He was without sin. That's what the Incarnation is. That's what the Incarnation means. And as astounding as this sounds, this is how God presents Himself to the world, folks. Watch out for yourselves. Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead, and this is probably a bit mocking, because these heretics were saying, we're going on to more advanced things. And John says, yes, you're going on ahead, that's for sure, but you're going on ahead and away from the truth. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now that kind of language is, is very unpopular today. It's so exclusive. Are you saying that Jesus is the only way? Yes. Why? Because that's how God presented Himself to us. And, and if, if we reject how God revealed Himself to us, we're rejecting God. You see, it's not our decision to decide how we think God should come to us. God did this. And if we reject the way God revealed Himself, we're rejecting God. And And if we reject God by rejecting the the Son of God become incarnate, it says, if anyone does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. But whoever abides in this teaching, the teaching, has both the Father and the Son. And then he gives some very practical counsel. If any teacher shows up to your church or to your door, and wants to sell you anything else other than this truth, don't give them any room to operate. Because if you do, you're participating in their deception, their anti-Christian deception. If anyone comes to you, verse 10, and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So... We're to avoid going ahead and going outside of this teaching of the Incarnation. Now, there is a a modern treatise, and in my mind, it's one of the the best um, modern theological treatises that that combats these ideas, these denials of the Incarnation. And it's a little book that was put out in 1972 by Barbara Robinson called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. I don't know if you know this or not. We read it together. Sandy read it out loud to us. If you haven't read it, it's a, it's a good read. And it talks about the Herdman family. Now, we meet the Herdman family in the first line, which says this. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cursed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and sent and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken down tool house. That's the Herdmans. There's six of them. And what happened was they took over a Christmas pageant at a local church and they threatened all the other kids with bodily harm if they volunteered for any of the main parts. 
And so the six Herdman kids got all the main parts in the Christmas pageant. Imogene was Mary. Her brother Ralph was Joseph. Three of them were the wise men. And the worst one of all, the smallest one, she had learned all the tricks of the other ones, the worst one of all got the part of the angel of the Lord, Gladys. So they were the main characters in this local church pageant. Now, I don't want to ruin it completely for you, but let me just read a little bit about how this Christmas pageant came off. And there's a a girl in the Christmas pageant that is narrating the story, and she says, we pick it up here, she says, After that, we sang two verses of O Little Town of Bethlehem. And then we were supposed to hum some more O Little Town of Bethlehem while Mary and Joseph came in from a side door. Only they didn't come in right away. So we hummed and hummed and hummed, which is boring and also very hard. And before long, doesn't sound like any song at all, more like an old refrigerator. And then Alice Wendelkin piped in. Now, Alice Wendelkin, you need to know Alice Wendelkin. She was the perfect little girl that always got to be Mary, but because Imogene had threatened her with great harm, she didn't volunteer that year. So, I knew something like this would happen, Alice Wendelkin whispered to me. They didn't come at all. We don't have any Mary and Joseph. And now what are we supposed to do? I guess we would have gone on humming till we all turned blue, but we didn't have to. Ralph and Imogene were there all right, only for once they didn't come through the door pushing each other out of the way. They just stood there for a minute as if they weren't sure they were in the right place because of all the candles, I guess, and the church being full of people. They looked like the people you see on the 6 o'clock news, refugees sent to wait at some strange, ugly place with all their boxes and sacks around them. It suddenly occurred to me that this was just the way it must have been for the real Holy Family, stuck away in a barn by people who didn't much care what happened to them. They couldn't have been very neat and tidy either, but more like this Mary and Joseph. Imogene's veil was cockeyed as usual, and Ralph's hair stuck out around his ears. Imogene had the baby doll But she wasn't carrying it the way she was supposed to, cradled in her arms. She had just slung it up over her shoulder, and before she put it in the manger, she thumped it twice on the back. I heard Alice gasp, and she poked me. I don't think it's very nice to burp the baby Jesus, she whispered, as if he had colic. Then she poked me again. Do you suppose he could have had colic? I said... I don't know why not. And I didn't. He could have had colic, or been fussy, or hungry, like any other baby. After all, that was the whole point of Jesus. That he didn't come down on a cloud like something out of amazing comics, but that he was born and lived. A real person. Right away, we had to sing, While shepherds watched their flocks by night, And we had to sing very loud because there were more shepherds than there were anything else. And they made so much noise, banging their crooks around like a lot of hockey sticks. Next came Gladys from behind the angel choir, pushing people out of the way and stepping on everyone's feet. Since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey, 
Unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was, for sure, the best news in the world. And that was the best Christmas pageant that church had ever had. Why? Because the first, for the first time, they saw the point that the Son of God became a real man. And that, my friends, is, as Gladys shouted, that is the best news in the whole world. Let's pray. Our God, this is astounding news. Quite shocking. And hard to grasp. But true. And it it meets all of our needs. It's just what we needed, Lord. For you to become one of us. To live. To die. To rise again. All as a man. And now represent us before the Father. As a man. But not any man but God in the flesh. And I pray, O God, that whether towards the end of December or in the middle of March or towards the end of July or day by day, that we would be struck over and over with just how close and permanently you came to us. That you are, in fact, God with us, not just for a little while, but forever for those who have faith in Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen.